Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics today include stories on the mechanism of progression in myelodysplastic syndromes, the value of gait speed as a predictor of outcomes in older adults with hematologic malignancies, the role of extended l therapy on severe aplastic anemia, and the role of the hedgehog pathway mutations in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Myeloid malignancies are clonal diseases of hematopoietic stem or progenitor cells, which stem from genetic and epigenetic alterations. These alterations perturb key processes, such as self-renewal, proliferation, and differentiation. Myelodysplastic syndrome, known as MDS, is a myeloid malignancy arising after the accumulation of multiple genetic and potentially epigenetic changes in hematopoietic stem cells. It's important to know that the order of mutations has an impact on clinical outcomes in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Unfortunately, it's difficult for MDS hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells to grow in vitro and graft immunodeficient mice or give rise to cell lines. These challenges have limited the number of studies using primary MDS patient samples that investigate the functional impact of the order of mutations or the consequences of additional mutations. In this study by Shu et al., investigators immortalized rare MDS precursor cells by using a technique called reprogramming. Specifically, they used non-integrating episomes to express the Yamanaka reprogramming factors, OCT4, SOX2, KLF4, and C-MIX7 to generate induced pluripotent stem cells, or induced PSCs. These cells could now be expanded and tested in functional assays. This is a significant advance, given previous studies in MDS or AML, demonstrating that reprogramming of mutant clones is significantly more difficult than reprogramming normal human stem cells. By highlighting the utility of the reprogramming approach, the authors made the following novel observations with respect to MDS biology. Mutations in the SF3B1 splicing gene can occur as a second hit in patients with multiple mutations. Mutations in SF3B1 can cooperate with EZH2 mutations to impair mitochondrial function and induce apoptosis, resulting in ineffective erythropoiesis. 5Q- can occur as an early cytogenetic lesion in patients with complex karyotypes, and it likely compromises genome stability by inducing persistent DNA damage and cooperates with TP53 mutations to increase chromosomal instability. Although Shu et al. has quite convincingly demonstrated the potential utility of this technique, several important caveats must be considered when using induced pluripotent stem cells models to study MDS biology. Most importantly, these studies were performed with a relatively limited number of primary patient samples, so it will be important to confirm the reprogramming efficiency advantages of the episomal system using more patient samples, including comparison with lentiviral vectors, which were not included in these studies. Second, because hematopoietic differentiation from induced PSCs represents fetal liver as opposed to adult hematopoiesis, it is possible that somatic mutations captured in reprogrammed induced PSCs may not have effects identical to those in MDS patients, 
because of developmental stage-specific modifiers of MDS biology. Third, reprogramming induces changes in the epigenome that could cause unpredictable effects in differentiated cells, confounding the interpretation of experiments. The inability of such systems to capture the effects of the bone marrow microenvironment in MDS biology remains a major concern because there is a growing body of literature implicating the microenvironment as a driver of both aging and MDS. Hopefully, existing limitations may be overcome with the development of methods for generating engraftable HSPCs. But until then, it will remain difficult to study the effects of sequential mutations on HSC self-renewal. Overall, studies confirm that reprogramming of clonal intermediates represents an important and robust approach to studying mechanisms of MDS progression and transformation. Next up, let's review highlights from a study conducted by Liu and colleagues that demonstrates the value of gait speed as a predictor of outcomes in older adults with hematologic malignancies. Liu et al. observed 448 adults with hematologic malignancies, aged 75 years and older. Each patient underwent geriatric screening at their initial consultation, including gait speed and grip strength testing, cognitive screening, and two frailty measures. The authors showed that gait speed predicted unplanned hospitalizations, emergency department visits, and survival, with each 0.1 meters per second decrease in gait speed increasing mortality by 20%. Gait speed was robustly predictive. These results were found to be independent of age, performance status, comorbidities, aggressiveness of malignancy, and treatment type. First, what makes gait speed an attractive way to measure the frailty of elderly patients? For the most part, simplicity. Gait speed takes one minute to complete. It requires no special equipment to perform. It doesn't need to be measured at every clinic visit. Smartphone applications that calculate gait speeds from elapsed time measurements are available. It's safe, even for frail patients, especially compared to other measures. Measuring gait speed is simple. However, walking is quite complex. Multiple systems work in concert to affect locomotion, with six different physiologic systems contribute to ambulation. The central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, the perceptual system, muscles, bones, and joints, and energy production and delivery. Studies have revealed that traditional oncology approaches, such as performance status, do not fully encompass the heterogeneous health statuses in older adults. Furthermore, Liu et al. discovered that adding additional measures of frailty to the model did not substantially further improve predictive power. Aging-associated vulnerabilities that are prevalent in older adults with hematologic malignancies, such as cognitive impairment, depression, sarcopenia, cardiopulmonary comorbidities, and anemia, among others, converge to impact gait speed. Gait speed serves as both a prognostic tool and a screening test to identify individuals who would benefit from intervention. It may be a simple test, but the evidence supporting the use of gait speed in older adults in general is extremely strong. It's possible that adjusting treatment recommendations based on gait speed will reduce toxicity, improve quality of life, 
or better help older adults meet their treatment goals, but further tests are needed to confirm its validity. In summary, Liu et al. have shown that adding one simple test as a marker of frailty to the existing measures provides robust prognostic and predictive information in older adults with hematologic malignancies. For our next topic, we'll discuss the impact of extended L-trombopac therapy on severe aplastic anemia, referred to as SAA, a lymphocyte-mediated bone marrow failure syndrome. Until the recent approval of l the prognosis of SAA patients who were refractory to standard immunosuppressive therapy with antithymocyte globulin and cyclosporine A was known to be bleak at best. Salvage therapies for patients ineligible for bone marrow transplant were limited to modest efficacy options, such as androgens and alternative immune suppressants. However, in 2012, a breakthrough Phase 1-2 study demonstrated that a 12- to 16-week treatment with a small molecule thrombopoietin mimetic l could produce hematologic responses in 40% of refractory SAA patients including several bi- and tri-lineage hematologic responses. Winkler et al. found that extending therapy from 12 to 24 weeks improved hematologic responses from 40% to 50% and nearly doubled the rate of multi-lineage responses, including higher neutrophil counts. Many responding patients continued L-trombopag beyond 24 weeks, and 9 of the 20 responders eventually met the complete response criteria after achieving a sustained robust clinical response, EPAG was able to be discontinued in more than three-quarters of patients. The majority maintained stable blood cell counts without drug long-term, and those with a decline in blood cell counts all regained responses when EPAG was restarted. Patients with SAA are known to be at high risk for clonal evolution, development of myelodysplastic syndromes, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or acute myeloid leukemia, with approximately 15% clonal evolution to an abnormal karyotype, or MDS-AML, at 10 years after initial immunotherapy, with horse antithymocyte globulin and cyclosporine. Patients with refractory SAA seem to have a higher risk of clonal progression. Concern has been raised that EPAG, which directly activates primitive HSPC signaling pathways, by activating the thrombopoietin receptor, might favor induction or selection of premalignant HSPCs. Over the course of this study, 18% of patients on EPAG were observed to have clonal progression, primarily within the first six months of treatment. The 18% rate of cytogenetic evolution over a six-month study period may exceed the expected rate of chromosomal abnormalities in SAA. Historical studies found cytogenetic abnormalities in approximately 10% of aplastic anemia patients, ranging from 3% to 26%. However, only one patient was reported to develop overt dysplastic changes in the marrow. Most of the cytogenetic changes appeared within the first 12 weeks of l therapy, and nearly one-half involved a complete or a partial loss of chromosome 7. Concerns remain about the long-term health of HSPCs recovered with l in patients with refractory SAA. The high rate of cytogenetic abnormalities 
particularly those involving chromosome 7, in close temporal association with L-trombopag treatment, suggests a causative link between thrombopoietin receptor signaling and cytogenetic evolution. Possible underlying mechanisms include an L-trombopag-mediated selection of pre-existing cytogenetically apparent cells or an increase in genetic instability by stimulating HSPCs beyond the limits of replicative senescence. Alternatively, some refractory SAA patients may have an occult inherited bone marrow failure syndrome, rendering them both refractory to immunosuppression and potentially more likely to develop genetic instability. In contrast to cytogenetic abnormalities, the prevalence of somatic mutations was unchanged during the six-month L-trombopag therapy, and no significant clonal expansion of pathogenic variants was seen within the cohort overall. Interestingly, nearly one-half of the patients did have the emergence of new or the disappearance of previously detected variants, indicative of a dynamic hematopoietic environment. Aside from abnormalities of chromosome 7, the clinical significance of other changes remains unclear. Notably, most patients had no immediate clinical sequelae, no morphologic findings of myelodysplasia at the 24-week primary endpoint, and no immediate clinical sequelae and no morphologic findings of myelodysplasia at the 24-week primary endpoint. One question remains. What is the impact of L-trombopag on the long-term risk of secondary MDS and AML in refractory SAA? According to historical studies, 15-20% to 20 of AA patients develop MDS-AML by 10 years of follow-up. Although, Winkler et al. established the efficacy of the extended L-trombopag therapy in restoring multilineage hematopoiesis in refractory SAA, this success may come at a price. New cytogenetic abnormalities presented in 18% of L-trombopag-treated refractory SAA patients, nearly one-half of which involve partial or complete loss of chromosome 7. Although Winkler et al. evaluated L-trombopag monotherapy for refractory SAA, it has been shown that L-trombopag can be added to an immunosuppression cocktail, such as rabbit antithymocyte globulin and cyclosporine A, and this may prove to be more efficacious than L-trombopag alone. Our final topic today features highlights from the article by Gia et al., reporting that a proportion of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia harbor mutations in genes involved in the hedgehog pathway. During the study, Gia and colleagues observed several important factors. For example, 11% of 841 untreated patients had mutations in hedgehog pathway genes. These gene mutations result in expression of glioma-associated oncogene homolog 1, a transcription factor that is the target of the hedgehog pathway. Remarkably, an additional 38% of CLL patients without mutations also had activation of the pathway and increased expression of glioma-associated oncogene homolog 1. And the high glioma-associated oncogene homolog 1 levels correlate with more rapid disease progression. The prognosis of chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients is known to be influenced by environmental factors and by two types of genetic changes. The first type of genetic change 
is somatic hypermutations of the B-cell receptor immunoglobulin gene variable region. These mutations are naturally acquired in the B-cell of origin and are preserved in the entire CLL clone after transformation. The second type is tumor lesions of genes involved in relevant signaling or metabolic pathways. These pathways include those associated with BCR signaling, NOTCH1 signaling, inflammation, Wnt signaling, chromatin modification, response to DNA damage, cell cycle control, and RNA processing. Gia et al. focused their attention on genes that were not involved in any of these known pathways. In doing so, they identified a new set of recurrently mutated genes associated with the hedgehog signaling pathway, which is very important for development, proliferation, and differentiation of mammalian cells. Remarkably, the data from the GIA et al. study also suggests that an approach with molecules targeting GLI-1 may not be particularly toxic because it does not seem to affect GLI-1-negative cells. If the general goal is to better understand pathogenesis of a large subset of chronic lymphocytic leukemia cells, these new results indicate that hedgehog seems to be another critical pathway that needs further investigation. Thank you for listening. For more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast.